0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with April Haynes, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her book, as Flesh, Women, Physiology, and the Solitary Vice in 19th Century America, published by the University of Chicago Press, is the topic of this show. In is Flesh, Haynes shows how the campaign against masturbation redefined women's sexuality, and reformulated the battle for political rights. Beginning with Sylvester Graham's Lectures to Mothers to reform minded Women to the black abolitionist Sarah Mapps Douglas Sex Education Lectures to African-American Women, masturbation became a topic with both gender and racial import. After a long history of neglect, it became tied to issues of purity, virtue, and self-government. Through women reformers, the Prescriptions Against Masturbation was popularized and institutionalized. Haynes sheds light on the continued attention given to masturbation, both in American culture and the women's movement, demonstrated at times its political significance. Here is my conversation with April Haynes. Now let me introduce you to the author, April Haynes. Hello, April. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience your book takes like a neglected and provocative historical topic and gives it political significance, which is what I found very interesting with the book. It was very unexpected, the topic and what you did with it. But before we get into discussion, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Riotous Flesh.
1: Thanks. I'm a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. and. I've always been curious about um, issues of women, gender and sexuality, as long as I can remember, but especially issues about, you know, how and why do large groups of people come to accept norms about sex and gender in the first place? So how do things that can seem ridiculous from a distance become natural appearing um, at a particular moment in time? And also, you know, who defines morality? You know, I was a child of the 90s and coming of age during the culture wars, it seemed to me that certain groups really monopolized the idea that morality should be conflated with sex. And there are so many other important moral questions, war and violence and poverty, and I just really wanted to get at the heart of how certain forms of morality come to dominate the conversation. So, um, I really didn't set out to to write a history of masturbation or female masturbation in particular, but I actually really began in graduate school with an interest in, um, you know, the dissenters of the 19th century, the people that we don't hear about. We think of the 19th century as a time when sexuality was repressed. That's being challenged increasingly in historical scholarship. But I really wanted to find those dissenters, and it surprised me that there was remarkable consensus, even among people that I would call sex radicals, that masturbation would make you sick and and ultimately kill you. And I needed to understand why people who could see uh, from the other side of so many issues agreed with the dominant society about this. And I ultimately came to discover that they were the ones leading the conversation, which really surprised me, and it
0: seemed like a story that I needed to tell. Yeah, one thing that was really important that's to tie it into what you just said is that there were the cultural attitudes towards uh the solitary vice as it was called uh in England and America were quite different. How did they differ?
1: Well, one of the uh, most important differences is timing. So um, the issue of masturbation as a health problem, as well as a moral concern, really grew up in England in the early 1700s. Um, as the historian Thomas Lecure has shown, um, this was a very popular discourse that was started kind of ironically among a, a group of um, pornographers, but who were positioning themselves as evangelical writers and were read that way by a, a large sector of the, of the British public. Um, but because this early tract, this first anti-masturbation tract that positioned it as a problem of both sin and illness at the same time, targeted men and masculinity, um, it didn't really strike a chord with Americans. I mean, some Americans, certainly a few elite men, bought this early tract, the British one, when it was imported. It was called Onania. And as it came to um, Boston and eventually spread to New York and Philadelphia, a few men purchased this and they privately recorded their struggle with this kind of um, what they considered to be an addiction that was leading to illness. But very few before the 1830s, very few Americans really cared much about this anti-masturbation advice.
0: And wasn't it uh, generally sort of geared towards men? Women were sort of just like it didn't apply to them for some reason.
1: Well, it applied to them only in the sense that they could be used, their stories okay. of female masturbation could be used as a kind of titillation for yeah. the, the readers who wanted to, uh, to read Onania for a kind of prurient reasons. So it, there, it was acknowledged that women masturbated, but it wasn't a crisis or a, a, a point of intervention for them um, to the same degree that it was for for men in the 18th century. And only when women really made themselves central to that discussion did it become controversial and really an issue worth interrogating for many Americans. The fact that women were speaking openly not only about sex but their own sexual desires, um, that white women were leading this conversation initially, um, who were presumed to be by many passionless, was really the contra- controversial opening point.
0: What I was wondering throughout the book, this is uh, association of masturbation with insanity. How did that come about? How did that so, connection get made? Was it because people in insane asylums masturbated a lot, so they said, okay, this is why they're crazy?
1: Certainly that happened in the 19th century. There are definitely cases of um, asylum administrators and physicians kind of confusing um, correlation with causation. So seeing evidence of people masturbating and not understanding that that could be a symptom of a pre-existing illness. But really earlier in the 18th century where it originated was this idea that the the brain was influenced by all the fluids in the system and that the nervous fluid, if it was overtaxed, would also overtax um, the nervous system, the the brain itself. Um, And so that kind of physiological argument um, was developed by French as well as English um, writers, and then it was adopted by the reformed physiologists of the 19th century in the United States and made a kind of um, gender neutral and even um, religious kind of argument um, about masturbation.
0: Okay. Well, I want to go through the book. In the first chapter, you talk about you have several colorful people in your book. And one is Sylvester Graham. You start off with him. And who was he? And what kind of reformer was he? And how in the world did he get involved in the solitary vice in women? How did that come about?
1: Sylvester Graham, few people remember him today, but when people do remember him, they think of him as the namesake of the Graham Cracker. He is known primarily as a dietetic reformer. He was a crusader for vegetarianism. He began his career, actually, as a crusader for temperance, the moderate and eventually you know, abstinence from alcohol. Um, and so he was really uh, quite... Um, vocal about moderating the appetites and the passions of the body, and he became more and more interested in physiology. He began to talk about um, sex and dress as... As other things that could affect the health um, in his public lectures and um, was shut down right away. And only when reformers reached out to him and actually invited him to become not a temperance or anti alcohol lecturer, but a physiology lecturer, did he begin to really explore the issue of sexuality. And um, he had. Lectured to women and men together. He had lectured on diet and non-sexual topics to them um, together um, without many problems. But when he lectured to women without their husbands, husbands present, um, it caused riots. And this is one of the sort of more um, surprising discoveries that I made along um, the, the path of writing this book, that people were so uncomfortable with the idea of women even hearing about masturbation, particularly from this male physiology lectures, um, that men and boys, as they were routinely described in accounts, rioted in the streets every time women went to one of these uh, physiology lectures.
0: So his, his, uh, his lectures were to women What was he saying to women about their sexuality? And I think this was really interesting. He was giving them a completely different vision or understanding of their own sexual life.
1: Yeah, he was saying that women and men have um, exactly the same sexual physiology, ultimately, that um, although their um, their organs are different, the processes of desire are the same and stem from the brain. So this is why masturbatory insanity resonates with Grammites and people who follow his physiological doctrines. Um, he was really, uh, as an evangelical Protestant Christian, he really believed that, Everyone had a soul that was capable of sin, and he extended that uh, that interpretation of scripture to the body and to physiology. Everyone was capable of desire, and by the same token, everyone was capable of restraining their desire. So um, this really challenged. Um, a kind of two-pronged idea about female sexuality that existed in the culture at that time. On one hand, most people thought of female sexuality as inherently more um, more restrained or, more, or less passionate, that they needed to be awakened to their sexual desires if they had them at all, um, and that men were the people who could do that. On the other hand, they were considered to be... Um, so easily awakened by seducers and by men um, that they could slip easily from seduction into prostitution. So there's a real um, polarity between asexuality and hypersexuality in early 19th century um, cultures approach toward women. and the solitary vice allowed women to step back from that and to consider themselves as individuals, their sexual desires totally unrelated to whether or not a man was um, trying to seduce them, was courting them, um, was giving them any kind of, uh, attaching any kind of sexual desire
0: to them. So basically, Graham sort of gave women in a, a certain kind of way, a sexual agency, but also moral agency to go with it.
1: I think his main concern was with the moral agency. And I think what women did with that was they used the language of the solitary vice to begin to explore and discover sexual agency. I think that they um, eventually kind of sidelined Graham and within a few years he actually got tired of the riots and he went to Northampton and he lived out the rest of his life writing physiology textbooks. Well, the women really carried on their discussions of sex, and they used the language of the solitary vice as a kind of screen that allowed them to say much more about sex sex and to um, really probe the problems of their culture um, and the sexual politics um, as they intersected with race as well as gender in their culture at large.
0: Now, the... Women were also, tr- moral reformers, women reformers, were trying also to question, they were questioning the sexual double standard. Yeah. And how did, how did Graham give them uh, some stuff to fight with?
1: So the sexual double standard really relied on this idea that women were inherently passive, in, uh, that their sexual desire was inherently passive, um, and that once it was ignited, it went out of control. Um, and so Graham helped them to uh, make the case that they, not patriarchs, whether fathers or husbands, um, were able to control their sexuality, and they were the only appropriate people to be controlling their sexuality. Um, also, he really challenged, and he was not alone in this, but this was one of his most kind of, and, and female moral reformers particularly um, seized onto this possibility, challenged the idea that men, especially white men, were entitled and naturally capable of only a kind of explosive, effusive sexuality, that, that it was unnatural for them to have to control themselves. So female moral reformers picked up the um, physiological argument that men were just as capable of sexual restraint as women, and they turned it into a very, very incisive critique of the sexual abuse of enslaved women and also a critique of prostitution um, as, as an, not an industry at that time, but as a market that traded in women's economic vulnerability regardless of race.
0: Now, some of these people, the men who were rioting against Graham uh, you described as uh, libertine Republicans can you talk about the, the those the men who were protesting Graham's lectures to mothers who were really getting infuriated what was he challenging what was the risk to them what was at risk for them
1: well at risk for them was control over the sexual discourse control over public space um, and really the the idea that they might have to control themselves, that women had boundaries worth respecting. Um, So Libertine Republicans were a particular subset of um, writers. I should just go ahead and tell you who they were. They were editors. They wrote for newspapers. um, And some of those newspapers were early kind of um, print um, erotica or pornography that geared toward a a masculine reading public. And um, they really argued that pleasure was an entitlement that should unite white men across class. So in the older, um, monarchical model, as opposed to a, a Republican, um, society, libertinage was aristocratic. It was elite. It was a privilege of gentlemen in a Republic. This was supposed to be extended to all white men and exclusives, uh, exclusive of, um, of women and also of men of color whose sexuality was much more likely to be controlled and was controlled.
0: Okay. Uh, you, you touched on this a little bit while ago. that There was, there was a huge racial component, particularly early on, uh, in terms of what Graham was teaching. Uh, can you talk about a little bit about how Graham's uh, reformed physiology was helpful to African-American women? Uh, in their own political battles, uh, anti-slavery abolitionists, and how was how it tied to abolitionists, and how did African Americans and women, uh, white women, kind of end up finding a common ground by which they can both fight uh, slavery and also women's rights, uh, fight women's rights. How does that all kind of work out?
1: That was really an innovation, in my view, um, that was... Um, led by African American women who were looking in the um, kind of reform culture for available tools, discursive tools, and also opportunities to totally challenge um, the ways in which their sexuality was being configured and represented. They were represented as hypersexual, while white women were being increasingly represented as passionless or asexual. And so they really intervened. They used that physiological doctrine of sexual universalism, that everyone is capable of restraint and also everyone feels passion to equalize.
0: And that kind of really hit at the heart of, of white men's uh, sense of privilege over black women's bodies.
1: Yes, absolutely. That was at the core of the, the riots that people call, historians call amalgamation riots, riots against interracial intimacy in public spaces, really were targeting anyone who fought white supremacy. Because as the moral reformers pointed out again and again, the rioters didn't go to brothels and tear them down if white men were having sex with African American women inside. They fought against the abolitionists when uh, white women and black men or white women and black women were fighting together against slavery and white supremacy in the north. That's when um, the riots really broke out. So I would I would not credit Graham with that innovation actually. I would credit it um, to the African-American and white women in his audiences. Graham has also been critiqued as culturally racist and I accept that, um, that critique in terms of his sort of chauvinism. He really, you know, uh, believed that Anglo-American culture was superior, Um, but as far as physiology goes, he argued that there was no basis in the body for moral or um, social difference in behavior.
0: Now, also, this uh, argument of self-government applied both to white women who were trying to assert their political rights and also to African-Americans. It's interesting that something like masturbation could end up having such political meaning to the right to self-government. I mean, it's just, wow.
1: That's really what it was all about, you know, and that's that's the reason why such a seemingly trivial behavior became important in the minds of some very radical reformers, actually, because the republic was totally constructed around virtue and citizenship was all about governing oneself and one's baser instinct um, in order to uh, participate in a wider society um, and to really look after the public good. If you could lay claim to that to that virtue, if you could show that you had that virtue, citizenship was in it with within your grasp.
0: And also, there was a there was a difference, and you talk about the difference between purity and virtue. Yeah, you could be pure, but virtue was something else. Virtue was more than purity. Purity was almost like a state of innocence from from the birth. Virtue was something that you had to externally ex- exercise moral restraint and power so you had to assert yourself to be virtuous.
1: Yeah. And I really think that moral reformers and black abolitionist women were on the cutting edge of making that distinction. And it was a crucial distinction for them because the whole idea that white women were inherently passionless was exactly what they were critiquing. If they couldn't take apart that idea um, that white women needed protection from black men and also black women, but that black women didn't deserve protection and didn't have that kind of capacity for self-government, then there was no no hope for ending slavery and for segregation and white supremacy in the North. Um, Assumption that um, adult white women were inherently pure was something that um, when African American women got involved in the moral reform movement in 1835, this was their primary target. And one way to both build a bridge to those white evangelical women and also to hold them accountable to the anti-slavery, the abolitionists and also anti-racist movements that were so important to them, um, was to argue that it's not good enough. Not only is white feminine purity a myth physiologically, but it's not good enough to simply passively remain chaste. What matters is your ability to assert virtue, and so that is the part that is—it's um, so compelling um, to um, moral reformers that they can do battle with their baser instincts, that they um, will win, um, and that—that's a road to sexual citizenship. It's one with pros and cons, though, and I try to explore those pros and cons. cons.
0: But one of the charges I was uh, getting to was the charge of char- – you could charge a woman with false delicacy, which what, – what was the implications of that?
1: So false delicacy was an expression that reformers used to say people who refuse to participate in sexual conversations and sexual reform movements are really hypocrites. They're resting on their laurels, and they can only do this because of the privileges of white femininity. But really, they're probably as guilty of sexual sins as anyone they're accusing. And so um, it became a kind of imperative to say, I'm willing to take on these risque subjects and talk about sexuality and physiology. Um, I'm willing to stake my reputation and privilege in order to do so. Um, That became a kind of um, proof of true delicacy to the most radical of reformers, of true virtue, that you are willing to risk um, everything to fight social injustice. That was the new meaning of virtue.
0: But what happened, you show in your book that... Uh, women reformers uh, basically gave up on the political aspects of this uh, reform physiology, and sort of ab- they abandoned it for just a sort of bourgeois, I guess, personal virtue that yeah. didn't it had lost its political connotation or political power, and it just became about personal. I don't know, delicacy, again.
1: So one thing to really keep in mind is that um, the whole idea that uh, masturbation would kill you started with a very small group of people in the United States, and they were the most radical of reformers, the ones who wanted to reform everyone and everything from their own bodies outward. When those people were also committed to ending the sexual double standard through the moral reform movement and to ending slavery, some of them wanted to end war altogether and joined peace societies. Some wanted to abolish cash economy. I mean, they were radicals in every sense of the word. Some wanted to abolish marriage itself. So they were true radicals, but as they started to um, spread their ideas to other groups, especially to rural moral reform groups that were small, that um, were associated with churches and that were entirely um, comprised of white women, they tended to, those uh, new groups tended to adopt selectively from the radical reform physiologists. And they tended to pick up, as you said, the sort of the most the most easy kind of virtue, which was sexual self-control. And uh, I don't mean to suggest that um, that's, that controlling one's sexuality is an easy thing or was for 19th century Americans, but compared to battling structural problems like slavery and coverture, wow. it was more tempting and many more uh, yeah. women did take up that kind
0: of... You talk about the, the ladies' physiological society. Can you talk a little bit about them and their role in spreading this a more generalized cultural obsession with masturbation?
1: So um, the Ladies Physiological Society of Boston actually began when a group of women who were sick of being rioted every time they tried to go to one of graham 's lectures decided to form their own group. Um, there was a, a male physiological society that they were they have been considered auxiliary to, but they didn 't see themselves this way, and they actually um, developed a whole different kind of meeting culture, where they really focused on um, their own testimonials, where they gave stories about their um, their their path from sexual sin and disease to sexual self-control and health and salvation, and they told these stories to each other as proof that they were on the right path, and also as a kind of group um, support for this, um, you know, difficult you know, difficult process of self-control. So I compare them in the book to, in some ways, actually, to consciousness-raising groups of the 1970s, because when women were talking in the 1830s and 40s in these small physiological societies about their health and about their bodies and their sexuality, it opened the door to much more capacious discussions of um, politics and sexuality. And so they started to really think about how to connect the dots to their social position and how they wanted to change it. Um, But at the same time, some of them, especially those who had no interest in affiliated movements, got totally absorbed in their own um, kind of health-seeking and their own salvation and their very individualized sexuality.
0: And that ended up actually abandoning uh, the African-American women who were using these arguments for for abolition and for their... For their rights, uh, and they abandoned the women. It seems like to me that's what it looked like to me, that they went off on their own, sort of, oh, I just want to be virtuous.
1: That's kind of the story that I end up telling, yeah. Unfortunately, in 1839 and 1840, when the um, abolitionist movement fractured, female moral reformers got really scared that they might not have a national movement if they they remained affiliated with the anti-slavery movement, and they withdrew from it. And one of the ways in which they withdrew from it was by asserting theirs as a movement of purity. So they completely retreated from the critique of purity and from the assertion That virtue um, and sexual activism mattered more,
0: and you show that is with uh, Grimke, Sarah Grimke. Yeah, which I was paying to see.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I know. You're not alone. I was pained to discover it. Uh, Sarah Grimke was a, uh, you know, she was really quite brilliant at um, adapting and explaining this doctrine of virtue as active and women as morally accountable on sexual and political fronts. And it was very important, the work that she did. And I should say that she got those ideas, um, many of them from her dear friend, Sarah Maps Douglas, an African-American um, abolitionist. Um, and they, they came to that in discussion over years, but over time um, Sarah Grimke Um, changed her position so that by the 1870s, surprisingly to me, and I think to a lot of readers, she was actually arguing, just as Libertine Republicans had in the 1830s, that when a woman falls, she falls harder, because falls from grace, that is, when she becomes tainted by sin, there's sort of no redemption for her, exactly the opposite of what black abolitionist women had kind of um, urged her, and and what she had herself argued.
0: Right, and it's almost that you can kind of understand it at the time because women's the consequences for women to have illicit sex was greater. You know, the risk of pregnancy and social so I can see I can see how she would finally just sort of like, yeah, the consequences are really worse.
1: The consequences there was no question that they were worse even in the eighteen thirties, but she was able to put it together in the eighteen thirties as a yes. young activist that the sexual double standard and racism, and the way that those two intersected, um, were at the heart of those negative consequences for women. By 1870, she had really moved away from that position, and she was really interested in the new social purity movement as it was being elaborated by an- another generation of suffragists—a post-war generation.
0: Okay, then. We- let's- in one of these chapters, you have, which is the m- most provocative chapter in the whole book, is the <laughs> chapter on Frederick Hollick. We just start, you talk about Frederick Hollick and his, he was a marketer of sexual knowledge. It was just an eye opener, uh, how far ahead he was of everybody in, in his explicit, uh, discussions of sexuality and marital sex and he, his quite, provocative for the time i think okay. so well, talk about him his what was his position on the solitary vice for one and how did he how did he end up making it into it really became sort of a a profit making thing
1: like like all uh, basically Americans by the 1840s. He was now coming out against the solitary vice. But one thing that he had learned, and I I sort of treat him as a bookend with Sylvester Graham at the beginning and him at at the end as um, kind of male icons that women rallied around for their own purposes. And so one thing that he learned from those women was that the solitary vice, if you said that your physiology and anatomy lecture was going to teach people not to masturbate because it could kill you, well, you could say a lot of other things in that lecture, and it was considered still to be decent, right? And anyone who said that you were an indecent lecturer or an obscene lecturer, he was targeted um, by obscenity charges, um, was guilty themselves of false delicacy. And they were probably secret masturbators. So you have this kind of foolproof um, you know, way of accounting for your position. Uh, so Frederick Hullick's ideas about sexuality were... Um, kind of a mirror image to Graham's in every way except for masturbation. So he, where Graham believed in restraint, sexual, um, Halleck was a sexual enthusiast, um, where Graham believed that even married people should be moderate in their sexual, um, expression towards one another. Halleck believed that, um, married women were entitled to all the same pleasure that, um, that their husbands were, that, um, consent was critical even within marriage and Graham would have agreed with that Um, but basically he talked all about um, female sexual response about orgasm about multiple orgasm he located the clitoris as the the center of women's sexuality. And for all of this, many of the women who had gotten tired of the moral reform position on um, sexual self-discipline, but were still concerned with matters of sexual autonomy, gravitated toward lectures, public lectures like his. And this was kind of an eye-opener. He was a lecturer in Philadelphia in 1846, um, and he lectured to women and men together, and then women separately, um, very much like Graham. And instead of being rioted because he had this kind of exuberant um sexual you know doctrine um he was prosecuted for obscenity. Um, the Libertine Republicans were members of his audience, and little did they know, they were sitting right next to moral reformers. And little did the moral reformers know that they were sitting right next to these Libertine Republicans. And the same goes for abolitionists. Um, pro-slavery defenders were in that o- the same audience, listening to the same information as white abolitionist women, and even a few African-American abolitionists. So it's kind of surprising, there was um, This kind of cultural um, agreement that the solitary vice had to go, but that there was a larger conversation about sexuality to be had. And everyone sort of thought, because they were using the same phrases like solitary vice and false delicacy and the laws of life, that they were all on the same page politically and really they disagreed pretty significantly.
0: Now he was uh, he asserted he asserted the primacy of marital sex, and you uh, you argue that this was contributing to the invention of heterosexuality
1: I do yeah uh, so I, so one thing to know about Hollick is that he actually um, only focused on married people's sexuality in order to get himself out of the scrape with obscenity libel. Um, he was one of the first cases of obscene libel and he was trying to save himself. Um, from the courts. But he actually was um, sort of his own inclination was to argue that sex should be free before marriage. And and in fact, that marriage should not control or contain sexuality. And at one point in his life, he had been one of the radical uh, free thinkers who questioned the institution of marriage altogether, though he himself married. So um, for him, it's not just about marriage for him, it is about this kind of natural sexual attraction between two polar binary genders that he sets up as complete opposites and magnetically attracted. A lot of the language that is used in contemporary you know, heterosexual courtship, being attracted to someone or being drawn to someone like a magnet, um, this is really a child of the 1840s, um, and he really kind of um, use that language to justify, look, you're not masturbating, so it's not deviant. What you're doing with your um, partner is natural, it's positive, and it's good for society because it prevents mental illness, it prevents people from masturbating and getting sick. Um, And so women who consumed this advice and who really wanted um, to promote him and protect him from obscenity charges, were very attached to their own idea of um, sexual entitlement, that not, it wasn't just for libertine Republicans. Moral reformers had um, broken the link of the sexual double standard as far as negative sexual rights, the right to say no, but positive sexual rights. So um, married white women who had sexual desires, they wanted to make sure everyone understood, were not abnormal, but were physiologically speaking natural, and were politically righteous.
0: Okay, now, so Halleck's Crusade was also, was you've mentioned it a little bit, uh, it was part of the marriage reform movement. What, what, what was the marriage reform movement? You talk a little bit about Fanny Wright in there, in your book. Um, there were some really radical thinkers about what marriage should be, and, and he was kind of providing something, some fuel to that.
1: Yeah, he started out on, on the side of people like Fanny Wright, who considered marriage um, a form, actually, of slavery that gave the husband ownership over the wife's body and was really problematic and and was really... You know, he had to go. But he over time moderated as he met um, more and more kind of middle class women with evangelical um, beliefs, and they became the kind of heart of his audience um, and his defenders. And he began to argue that um, marriage should be reformed, but not abolished. And, um, he was not alone in this. This was totally not original to him. But feminists, um, those who were advocating for women's rights, um, before Seneca Falls, including, um, people like Margaret Fuller and others, Elizabeth Oak Smith, um, all sorts of women's rights advocates, um, were really critiquing the marriage relation. Um, and they were really concerned in, um, concerned with, before even the vote, they were concerned with women's ability, married women's ability to own property and control property so that if they needed to get out of a relationship, they would be able to support themselves so that they would not be utterly dependent on their husbands, um, the ability to challenge domestic violence. And for Hollick, um, the ability, you know, his audience, the women who comprised his audiences, the ability to say yes and no to marital sex was crucial to um, really um, understanding themselves as as individuals and having right. rights in a society. So this
0: had pol- this all had pol- this is all wrapped up every part of your book is all wrapped up with the political position of women and how they're going to advocate for themselves politically. They have to establish first self government. They've got okay. to be able to establish some sort of rights within marriage and within their own sexuality before they can begin to assert hey, now we can have these political rights like men because we're as virtuous as men and we have self-government and we, we have the same... It's really interesting.
1: And and education. So they were advocating for their medical education, for their freedom of speech, for their ability to congregate in public spaces, you know, First Amendment rights. And they were calling themselves ladies and citizens. So I described this as a kind of bid for sexual citizenship. And it was really fraught, but it was the tactic that they
0: used. I really love that. I just love the connection you made with that. That is just really interesting. And I think there's a lot that can be done with it further, but uh, you start talking at, let's get back to African American people because you talk about um, one thing that you mentioned is the fact that African American people were portrayed as being sexually immoderate, that even when there were drawings of of, of physiology, their sexual organs were sort of distorted and uh, larger or whatever more prominent. And then we have Sarah Maps Douglas which who is a really important part of your book what was her role in in the invention of sex education what was she doing with african-american women what was her uh connection to the reformers talk about her she's important i've never i had never seen her before and i was very interested in what she did with her
1: I think she's an understudied figure. Um, Sarah Mavs Douglas is, um, the first, um, recorded African American sex educator. And I really tell the story of why that became so, um, in the last chapter of the book. So, um, she began as, um, she was, uh, an elite African American woman in Philadelphia. Um, and she began her life at, um, interested in, um, improving the lot of people like herself, free black women, but she became very, um, very concerned with abolishing slavery in the early 1830s. And she convened several reading circles with um, other African-American women to discuss political issues and to really learn, um, as the historian Mary Kelly says, to stand and speak in um, in especially spaces that um, were supposed to be um, what what Carla Peterson calls a community sphere. So spaces where African Americans could control the terms of discourse. And um, black women and girls, increasingly, she wanted to empower them to use the knowledge of the body, the physiology that was becoming so popular to dispute um, some of the ways that they were being portrayed so that they would have the language of physiology at their own disposal. She taught um, at a Quaker school in Philadelphia for um, decades actually, Um, and she taught also um, not only at this kind of private school where you had to pass an elite test in order to be admitted, but If you were able to pass that test, there was no tuition, so it wasn't necessarily closed to only elite girls, but anyone who aspired to become a teacher in African American schools, um, she was really kind of trying to teach them physiology. Now the birth of American sex education actually goes all the way back before the 20th century, which a lot of people don't know, but to the 1850s um, when moral reformers and Sarah, Sarah Maps Douglas had been part of that interracial moment of moral reform all the way in the 1830s, had been pushing for 20 years to get physiology taught in classrooms precisely so, um, not only Children and future citizens would take good care of their health in many ways, but so they wouldn't masturbate. This was one of the first kind of um, reasons to teach physiology and sex education. So if you think about um, the kind of discussions around teaching sexuality in schools to prevent, um, you know, uh, teenage pregnancy or to prevent sexually transmitted infections. This was the 19th century version of that impetus. And Sarah Maps Douglas saw this as a kind of a bigger opportunity too, because in her school, for her students, it could empower them to talk about um, sex in anti-racist ways and to push back against craniometry and the measuring of skulls and body parts and bones. Her classroom was totally decorated with skeletons and bones she was all about getting um her students very comfortable talking about talking back to uh scientific racism
0: yeah she i mean she was a, she was a scientist herself In meaning, in the 19th century terms she knew a lot about from what i read that you showed she seemed to know a lot about the, for the physiology of the time what people understood about human bodies and what they did and
1: Yeah, she attended courses at the um, medical college in Pennsylvania as soon as women were admitted. She was one of the very, very few black women who attended um, courses there. One of her students went on to get one of the earliest uh, medical degrees there. So, yeah, I mean, she was paying attention to physiology from day one, and it was because it was absolutely married to politics and to sexual autonomy for her.
0: Yes, and the idea of uh, sexual sovereignty. Yeah, it for that African um, for African American women, which was yeah. the first. It's the first step. If you have to have sovereignty over your own body, that that sort of kind of attacks the whole basis for slavery. That no one can own you.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the sort of most illustrative. Um, components of Sarah Maths Douglas's idea of sexual sovereignty for black women was the idea that they don't need to just restrain themselves. This kind of white moral reform um, obsession with restraining one's impulses um, didn't quite map on to African-American women and girls' experience. What she wanted to call forth was their ability to protect themselves, but also to see themselves as beautiful and even their desire as beautiful. So she walked a very fine line. On one hand, she was constantly affirming sex and affection and desire. And on the other hand, she was telling them that sexual conformity is key, right, to, um, to your rights.
0: And I'm kind of wondering how this ties into the marriage reform because uh, slaves were not able to marry. So marriage the reform for African-American slaves was really kind of a non-starter. I'm just kind of wondering there's something going on there with that, it seems to me, that she would not have emphasized marriage as much because it was so much denied.
1: Right. Well, she certainly married, um, and she married later in life, and she only began her career as a public sex educator. So I've been talking about her school, but outside of her school, she also lectured to um, women and girls who couldn't afford to give up their whole day to schooling and who weren't admitted to this small private school. She gave public lectures on physiology, and sometimes they were about... um, you know, anatomy and bones and so forth, and sometimes they were about sex and work and all sorts of aspects of how the body works and how to rest after a day's work. She had a lot of different kind of um, views um, compared with white reformers, and certainly the critique of marriage would not and did not resonate with
0: her in the same way. Not because she was against marriage, but because it had been denied to African-American slaves so much denied to them that the that she had to deal with the sexuality because they're still sexual beings, even though they're not yeah. married.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, so she, she was interested in um, women having a kind of range of possibilities and she understood that those possibilities were much more bounded for African-American women than for anyone else in the culture. And she was really interested in expanding the bounds uh, just as much as she possibly could. But she she wasn't um, didactic as far as marriage goes, the evidence that I've seen with her students. She was really kind of counseling, continuing the trajectory of counseling self-knowledge, more than self-control, self-knowledge and even self-love. Um, and that self-control figured into it, but it didn't kind of take over the discourse um, as it did for some.
0: So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, necessarily in the context... She didn't preach against marriage, but it wasn't within the context of of marriage like Pollock was talking about sexuality so much more within the context of marriage.
1: Right. Okay, so uh, now I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, she, she didn't um, emphasize marriage quite so much. Um, she was dealing with um, free women of color in the North, so she wasn't... I mean, she was aware, yeah. of course, of the... Um, serious problems um, that emerged from being denied marriage for enslaved people um, and she regularly interacted with formerly enslaved people because she was part of uh, the movement to protect them from re-enslavement no she didn't limit her conversations about sex to marriage and partly she was working towards citizenship from a different angle than the women who were the white women who were in hollocks audiences but she did um, she did know of Holland. She actually named one of her um, sex lectures, The Origin of Life, which was the very same name of the book that Hollick had published and which was prosecuted for obscenity. So it was kind of like a Philadelphia buzzword. If you were talking about the origin of life, you were certainly talking about sex. And she named one of her her lectures this to indicate, I'm going to talk about sex from a popular scientific perspective, but I'm also going to tell you my own position. I won't be parroting what this other lecturer
0: has said. Now, in in your, in your last part of your book, you you connect uh, well. You've done it all throughout the book. You're connecting women's erotic rights to women's political rights, and and then you you bring a little thing in there that I just was fascinating was the women's liberation movement in the nineteen seventies, and you kind of show how this emphasis on masturbation, masturbation is continues to be a politically you know laden term or idea or practice that has so much political meaning, and you kind of even sort of question, how far will that go? You know, how far can you just do that and think you're making a political statement? Can you talk about that? Because I thought it was just really an interesting little twist there.
1: Yeah, so one of the, uh, when I used to t- talk about this project with colleagues, they would sort of um, get what I was saying about the connection to so- to sexual sovereignty and women's rights and so forth in the 19th century, but then they would sort of ask, well, what happened, what happened to all of that? How did it how did it turn around in the 1970s? And they kind of pointed me towards some of the um, the 1970s feminists who were so involved in reclaiming masturbation from this kind of um, reviled act, which they in the 1970s considered a sign of patriarchy. So the, uh, the assumption there was now women need to be, they've been so alienated from their sexual bodies and they've been so overdetermined as, um, especially white women, as lacking sexual desire that they need to figure out how to become expressive and orgasmic, and that happens through masturbation. And so you have this kind of outgrowth of not only consciousness-raising groups, but feminist therapy groups um, and so forth that place um, clitoral masturbation at the very base of female sexuality. And I'm not really challenging that project so much as what really concerns me is that we should, I think the big lesson here is we should never allow the the urgent need to change the sexual culture of our own moment as that is felt by so many feminists and members of LGBT communities to eclipse the ways in which the dominant sexuality intersects with and sustains more structural hierarchies of race and gender and class and nation. I think that's, that myopia is what ended up um, causing the great masturbation panic of the 19th century. Um, that myopia can be very dangerous because it can generate new norms that are completely unintended, but have terrible consequences, such as clitoridectomy and uh, you know, incarceration in insane asylums, terrible consequences, which the anti-masturbation discourse did ultimately have. Um, that they can also, that kind of myopia can derail social justice movements more broadly and preserve old hierarchies by doing so. Um, so if everyone is, you know, kind of focusing on their own individual liberation, it's important wow. movement to fragment.
0: And also you have to kind of make a distinction between your sexual agency and your own personal life and the larger politic and how to connect that because just thinking that masturbation alone is going to be a political act, and there's nothing further to do except yeah. just own your power. Yeah. There's got to be more. There's
1: something very tempting, I think, in popular culture um, that's kind of leading us to believe that sexual liberation is the ultimate freedom, and i I'm cautious. I'm cautious about that. I'm I'm concerned about that. Um, and all we have to do is look around at the many injustices that continue, um, despite the fact that um, probably I won't be, you know committed to an insane asylum for masturbating so that little piece of the puzzle is just opens up a window onto kind of the the deeper issue of what happens when when we allow ourselves to be distracted and self really overly self-involved
0: april uh you've been very generous with your time if, i have one final question what are you working on now
1: uh, so right now, I'm, I, I actually got really interested in those female moral reformers and abolitionist women and their relationships with the women that they they purported to rescue, whether they were rescuing them from prostitution or from slavery. Um, so I'm looking at the creation by uh, abolitionists and moral reform women of a, dom- a market for waged domestic work in the early American republic.
0: Okay. Well, thank yeah. you, April. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. If you have comments, drop me a line through my website, LillianBarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.